As we come of age, we are confronted with the necessity to create a path for our lives. Living as we do within the constraints of responsibility, the path we choose must include making a living for ourselves, becoming mature and independent, becoming educated, discovering opportunity. I saw two broad options to choose between. Either find a career that I could tolerate, that would provide for the needs of my family while enabling me to pursue my own interests in the meantime, or find a career that aligned directly with my interests and pursue that, even if it meant significant material sacrifice. I chose that one. I decided to become a scientist and a scholar even though the path is uncertain, insecure, and long. It has turned out to be even longer and more uncertain than I anticipated. I have learned a lot, and I have learned how to learn. I have managed to get by materially, and I have benefited from exposure to scarcity, especially in my 20s. As a graduate student, it was by no means assured that I would acquire my PhD. Conditions both under my control and out of it presented extreme challenges. I benefited from exposure to those too. After completing my PhD program, I became a postdoc and it has not been an unsuccessful time. I've managed to publish some work. I've had the opportunity to delve into the depths of the consciousness problem like never before. I have had my day science and my night science, and a satisfying degree of integration between them. Now I am confronted again with uncertainty. What will happen next? I hope to become a great college teacher and mentor. My CV is in the inboxes of a dozen institutions for assistant professor positions. These positions are highly competitive. I don't know what to expect. My optimism falters. I know that I will do what I have always done as I walk along this path. I'll find a way forward. I will endure. I'll do what I must, but I won't foreclose my single-minded pursuit of truth. In a market economy driven by demand, I don't know if mine is the right supply. But I have something valuable to offer. An unambivalent authenticity of spirit. An intellectual curiosity. Wish me luck. Throughout this podcast, I have often discussed the concept of meaning. I have claimed that conscious contents are meaningful. Qualia are subjective meanings. Meaning is the relationship that obtains between two or more things. But there is, of course, a second meaning of the word meaning, the one to which one refers when they ask, what is the meaning of life? The theme of this podcast is the connection between consciousness and the physical world. This episode in particular ventures out in a different related direction. Here I want to explore the implications of being conscious. What does it mean for us to be conscious beings? What posture should we assume given our predicament as conscious minds brought into the world by evolutionary processes in an animal lineage? We are not animals ourselves, but we are part of them, subordinate or superordinate processes of humankind. Given the conclusions of the last episode, and indeed the corpus of this podcast, how should we approach the second sense of meaning, purpose? If I am made to serve Jesse, and his interests manifest as mine through an accident of evolution, then what is my meaning? Jesse's meaning is utilitarian, ultimately. He is a human machine, operating in an objective world according to physical laws. He has been sculpted by natural selection to maintain his survival and produce offspring. Apparently, I am helpful to this, as natural selection seems to have favored my production by means of the brain. In continuity with the previous episode, Jesse and I are distinguishable in that Jesse is a human animal and I am the conscious mind of a human animal. I am the I and I think, therefore I am. In recognizing this distinction, we might favor a religious or overtly spiritual framing. Perhaps this human animal is just a mortal coil and I can think of myself as primary. 
in favor of this framework, I do hold that conscious beings are all that can really matter in the world. Jesse, the human organism, cannot really matter any more than a rock or a fungus or a fly-blown carcass. What I mean to say is that objective things don't have the characteristic of mattering. To matter is a relative term. It matters to whom? There is an important sense in which Jesse, the human animal, matters. What Jesse does and what happens to Jesse matters to me and to other conscious beings. Again, though, the mattering is localized in the conscious beings, not in the body of Jesse. My claim here is that meaning could only be found in me and other conscious minds, so it makes sense to take a spiritual posture in the sense of caring about consciousness or the soul more than caring about non-conscious materials. We notice that the most important things in life are other people, our family and friends, mentors and benefactors. We might wish to believe in the manner of religious ideology that we can care about these people because they have transcendent souls. After all, we care about the people in our lives as if they are that significant. There are people to whom we are wholly devoted, for whom we would make great sacrifices. There are also ideas to which we are devoted and for which we would make great sacrifices. This might cause us to believe that those ideas are transcendent. We might be devoted to ideals like truth and freedom and justice. I'm sure you can relate to those ideals. Given such people and such ideas of value, we might be able to justify a religious structure to provide us with meaning. But it is difficult for me to see the logic in concluding that this posture is warranted. Ironically, I can't believe in religion because of my deep devotion to ideals like truth and justice. My faith is so great that I couldn't possibly be religious. There is an implication to this, though. It means that I have something like a religious grounding, and I think that everyone who is not a nihilist or a psychopath must share some version of this. I couldn't practice science without a foundational belief in objective reality. You might recall that in the first episode of this podcast and several times since, I've listed five assumptions that I start with as a foundation to thinking productively about consciousness. One of these is the assumption that the physical universe exists. Not only that, I think we can learn its properties through empirical methods. But no one thinks that the scientific method is a religious method because it begins with hypotheses and then works to prove them wrong whereas religion proposes hypotheses and then elevates them to law, regardless of their proximity to truth. Moreover, whereas the scientific method can inform our pursuits regarding freedom and justice, these are not really its domains. The freedom to pursue truth is a prerequisite to its practice, though. Religion, and notice I'm speaking in generalities, tends to prescribe its notions of justice in the same manner by which it prescribes its notions of truth. Here is the truth. Here is what is just. Now you have no further need for freedom. If we want to pursue truth, justice, and freedom, and other values of personal or mutual interest, we are going to have to stand up and take some responsibility for ourselves. Unfortunately, that means we have to answer for ourselves the age-old question, what is the meaning of life? So let's work from a few assumptions that apply to me and perhaps to you and see if we can find the meaning for our lives. Let's assume that there is only the physical universe. Let's assume that humans are evolved animals on planet Earth. Let's assume that consciousness arises from natural processes and follows physical laws. And let's assume that conscious minds are emergent from certain brain functions. Finally, let's assume that consciousness serves a function for human animals. You and I are conscious minds. So where do we find meaning? The ancient Greeks and Romans provided an answer in the form of Stoicism. In his book, The History of Philosophy, A.C. Grayling writes, quote, the fundamental Stoic idea in ethics is that happiness, which they agree is the goal, 
telos of life, consists in living in accordance with nature. What is in accordance with nature is what is good. The good is what benefits us in all circumstances, unlike things which are only good in some circumstances and not in others, for example, wealth. Things that are sometimes good and sometimes bad, the Stoics called indifference. The things that are always good are the virtues of prudence, courage, moderation, and justice. Given that wealth can sometimes be good, though, it is not an unqualified good like prudence, we need to distinguish between what is good as such and what can sometimes have value. Things which have value can be preferred over their opposites. Wealth, health, and honor can be preferred to poverty, illness, and dishonor because they are usually of advantage to us or appropriate for us, and as such we have a natural tendency to seek them. But if they interfere with the realization of what is wholly and unqualifiedly good, they are, of course, not to be preferred to it. Living well consists in rationally choosing those things that are good and those things that conform to nature. It may well be that we do not succeed in achieving certain of the indifference which we rationally and appropriately pursue, such as wealth. But if we have what is good, courage, prudence, moderation, we will still be happy. An important aspect of this is the idea that what lies within our own control, for example our appetites, desires, and fears, we should seek to master. But as to what lies beyond our control, those things that we can do nothing about, such as aging or suffering because of an illness or earthquake, we must face them with courage. The difference is between action and passion. Action is what we do. Passion is what we undergo or suffer as recipients without a choice. To bear the passions courageously means not, in, not letting them master us." Unquote. Jordan Peterson provides advice which aligns well with Stoicism in Twelve Rules for Life, in which he argues for taking on responsibility in order to find meaning and sustain yourself through the pain and suffering of life. Peterson writes, quote, There is no faith and no courage and no sacrifice in doing what is expedient. There is no careful observation that actions and presuppositions matter, or that the world is made of what matters. To have meaning in your life is better than to have what you want, because you may neither know what you want, nor what you truly need. Meaning is something that comes upon you of its own accord. You can set up the preconditions. You can follow meaning when it manifests itself. But you cannot simply produce it as an act of will. Meaning signifies that you are in the right place at the right time, properly balanced between order and chaos, where everything lines up as best it can at that moment. What is expedient works only for the moment. It's immediate, impulsive, and limited. What is meaningful, by contrast, is the organization of what would otherwise merely be expedient into a symphony of being." Unquote. If I understand him right, Peterson is suggesting that we must be challenged, must challenge ourselves in order to have meaning. It will not come easily in the moment. It requires time and sacrifice. One has to be disciplined. In these ways, I see his advice as possessing the spirit of Stoicism. I embrace a measure of this philosophy in my own approach to being. In reading about existentialism, I was surprised to find a great parallel between my line of thought in the previous episode, me and Jesse, and the writing of, say, John Paul Sartre. Grayling writes, quote, Sartre begins by distinguishing two fundamental categories of being, the in-itself and the for-itself. In crude terms, the in-itself is non-conscious being. The for-itself is conscious being. Later he adds a third category, the for-others. Each human being is both an in-itself and a for-itself combined. A person's in-itself aspect is passive, existing inertly and lumpenly. It just is what it is. Her for-itself aspect is dynamic, fluid and metamorphic. It depends on the in-itself, 
that is, it cannot exist without it, but is continually making an effort to transcend or annihilate it, thus creating a situation. Unquote. Roughly speaking, there is a parallel here between the human body, which is to say Jesse, as the in itself, and the conscious mind, or me, as the for itself. The illusion is that they are one and the same, but once the illusion is broken, one is confronted with a situation. In another section, Grayling quotes Sartre's uh, existentialism is a humanism, in which Sartre says, quote, Man first of all exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world and defines himself afterwards. Man is condemned to be free, because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does." Unquote. Since we are confronted with freedom, but also responsibility, we are caused anguish. I can't help but be reminded of the situation that Adam finds himself in in Genesis. Now that he has grown up and gained knowledge of good and evil, he is made to suffer and work, to take responsibility for himself. On the other hand, the scales have fallen from his eyes and he is free. Freedom comes at the great cost of responsibility. Grayling writes, quote, The question arises whether it is possible to achieve authenticity, the chief if not indeed sole value of Sartrean ethics. In light of our condemnation to the alienated and anguished conditions described, his answer does not seem to describe something attainable. It is this. We achieve authenticity if we abandon our desire to become an in itself for itself and thus liberate ourselves from the identification of our ego as being in itself, that is, as a thing. Instead, we must allow a pre-self-aware selfness to emerge to replace me as an ego. If I cease from being in relationships of appropriation and self-identification with my ego, and instead focus on my aims and goals in an outward-directed way, I cease living in bad faith." Unquote. I'm not sure whether I agree with this or not, but it seems to relate to the approach we take to self-transcendence through meditation and psychedelic experience, and that at least seems worth exploring. I'll share one more little section from A.C. Grayling on Albert Camus. I remember really liking The Plague when I read it. It was a long time ago, but it seemed to me that Camus' protagonist in the book was doomed to fail to save his patients, but was heroic anyway for insisting on trying. This humanitarian form of existentialism appeals to me because it seems to acknowledge that we are doomed to die and disappear forever, but that we are not alone. We can be here for each other. This really is the way we live and express the best of ourselves. When soldiers are in the worst situations, when they are fighting for a cause they don't even believe in, when they really may never make it home, they fight for one another. This, if nothing else, is what makes them heroes. On Camus, Grayling writes, quote, it was common for Albert Camus to be bracketed with Sartre as an existentialist, although he repudiated the label and insisted instead on describing his view as absurdist. He argued that humankind's absurd condition consists in the gratuitous nature of the relationship between humanity and the world. The fact that neither has any intrinsic meaning is the only bond between them, as he puts it. It invites one of three responses, literal suicide, intellectual suicide in the form of accepting some form of religious solace, or courageous acceptance and embrace of the absurdity of things. His essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, is apart from his novels the chief statement of this view. It concludes by saying of Sisyphus, condemned for eternity to a futile task, never succeeding in getting a boulder to the top of a hill, that in view of the fact that the struggle itself confers meaning, one must imagine Sisyphus happy." Unquote. So I guess I am in the position of Camus' courageous acceptance and embrace of the absurdity of things. It is absurd that I am manifest in the world as the mind of this man, Jesse. 
What wisdom can I take from the Stoics and the Existentialists to guide me through this absurdity? I have made clear the distinction between Jesse and me. In the same way, in previous episodes, I have gone to some length to distinguish between self as ego or construct and self as point of view. The self as ego, which answers to Sartre's being in itself, that is an illusion to me, the illusion that I am Jesse. The self as point of view, which answers to being for itself, must therefore be the whole of me. The contents which I view, as it were, makes the whole character of my experience. Thus it is only through them that I can find meaning. The brain produces the contents according to natural selection and the stimuli with which it is confronted. It seems there is no way out but through. I can take responsibility for Jesse, help him and provide for him and develop him into a better man, as if he were me. Well, what do I get in exchange? Everything. Satisfaction, pleasure, pride, freedom, friendship, love, inspiration. The opportunity to be a hero in my own story. In a word, I get meaning. If you have not read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, I recommend that you do. It's astounding to feel such proximity of mind between where you and I are sitting in the 21st century and where this ancient emperor was situated. How much commonality we share across such a vast expanse of humanity. I'll share with you a few passages that capture the spirit of Stoicism. Marcus Aurelius writes, quote, I am made of body and soul. Now to the poor body all things are indifferent, as it cannot even make any distinction. To the mind, all that is not its own activity is indifferent, and its own activities are all in its control. But within these, the mind is only concerned with the present. Its activities in the future and in the past are also indifferent at any present moment." Unquote. This is the observation that from the point of view of the conscious being, there is nothing but the present content. The Stoic, therefore, focuses on the present moment and his action in it. Here's another, quote, If you are doing your proper duty, let it not matter to you whether you are cold or warm, whether you are sleepy or well-slept, whether men speak badly or well of you, even whether you are on the point of death or doing something else, because even this, the act in which we die, is one of the acts of life. And so here, too, it suffices to make the best move you can, unquote. I'll give you one final passage from Marcus Aurelius, quote, Injustice is sin. When universal nature has constituted rational creatures for the sake of each other, to benefit one another as deserved, but never to harm, anyone contravening her will is clearly guilty of sin against the oldest of the gods. Because universal nature is the nature of ultimate reality, to which all present existence is related. Lying, too, is a sin against the same goddess. Her name is Truth, and she is the original cause of all that is true. The conscious liar sins to the extent that his deceit causes injustice. The unconscious liar to the extent that he is out of tune with the nature of the whole and out of order with the nature of the ordered universe against which he fights. And it is fighting when he allows himself to be carried in opposition to the truth. He has received the prompts from nature. By ignoring them, he is now incapable of distinguishing false from true." Unquote. In common among the Stoics and the Existentialists is a realization that we are tied to human being whether we like it or not. We can either be overcome with a sense of doom or we can embrace our lot and be grateful. There is no being for me outside of human being. Even if there is something of me which precedes Jesse and which endures beyond him, what does it amount to? My personality, my interests, my relationships, my ambitions, these are all Jesse's, 
Everything that I know and love comes to me through his senses and cognitive processes, cultivated by eons of selection and refinement. I am conscious of his contents. Even this occurs to me. The question, what is the meaning of life, is a human question. We wander the world manipulating its objects, discovering its rules, exploiting its opportunities. We wonder how things work, how they can be used, whether they are helpful or threatening, meaningful or superfluous. You see, we even wonder about the utility or danger of being itself. Everything has a purpose, right? So mustn't I? Being without human being would not even wonder at that. It would wonder at nothing. What is being without wonder? I am, after all, it seems, not just a conscious being, but a conscious human being. To be and be human, or not to be at all? Isn't this human life enough for me? Why should I be entitled to more, when I'm not even entitled to this? And what an entitlement I have accepted free of charge, to live and perceive, to love and be loved, to be the protagonist in a real story. The plot is uncertain, but I wouldn't want it any other way. If there were no uncertainty, the narrative would lack in beauty and drama. Being would be meaningless indeed. It is evident that by nature the Stoics are not referring to animal instincts or drives. You can see that they counsel discipline with regard to such impulses. Nature for them is what is real, what is true. It is something greater, something ultimate. Marcus Aurelius referred to nature as a deity. I wonder if we have gone so far in our personification of such powerful abstractions and as truth and nature, imagining them as human-like entities with purpose and personality, that we have forgotten the meaning of such gods. When we personify the gods as creatures, rather than powerful metaphors, do we not cast them in gold to make false idols? Fundamentalist religion looks to me to be prostrating like fools before a golden calf. Have we not mistaken a symbol of something meaningful for the thing itself? There is, I think, a new kind of postmodern atheism, which challenges not as we modern atheists have the claims on truth made by religious revelation, but rather the reality of truth itself. In the passage I just read, Marcus Aurelius calls her the goddess truth. If truth be a goddess, then I am her disciple. I recognize that we are not positioned to know the truth, and we take a faithful risk in trying to do so by means of reason and evidence. Nevertheless, I can build from the self-evidence of knowing I am and the wisdom and knowledge attained by others before me. And even if, like Camus' Sisyphus, I am destined only to try and to never obtain the truth that I seek, I will carry the cross of my boulder as high as I can manage in pursuit of her. Let that be my hero's journey. For I contend that the higher the elevation that I attain, the greater shall be my view on justice, and the freer I shall feel. And one must imagine me happy.